morning, everybody. Uh, we are uh, concluding today our series that we've uh, been in throughout the month of May called YOLO, uh, which means you only live once. And, uh, you know, the world's idea of YOLO is you only live once, so throw caution to the wind, you know, do whatever you wish, um, and even as the teacher in Ecclesiastes said, at one point in this book of Ecclesiastes, we've been studying, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You know, you might as well, you might as well just do whatever you want because you only live once, right? And for some, that is the interpretation of carpe diem, you know, seize the day. Do whatever you wish, doesn't really matter in the end. And, and that's really a lot of what the first part the devil's advocate part, if you will, of Ecclesiastes is saying. Uh, but ultimately, it, it ends differently. Uh, and, and, and I said in my email a couple weeks ago, maybe the, the new uh, acronym uh, should be L-I-F-E, life, uh, live intentionally for eternity. Uh, because the fact is, yes, you only live once, but if, if you live it well... Once is enough. And so in this series, we've been learning about the meaning and the purpose, and is there meaning and purpose in life uh, through this ancient wisdom literature uh, that is a part of, of the canon of Scripture uh, called Ecclesiastes uh, that most think was written by Solomon. And it's a very unique, it's a very unique book. Bono uh, said, Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books. It's about a character, and that's the teacher, who wants to find out why he's alive. Why he, has, why he was created. He tries knowledge, he tries wealth, he tries experience, he tries everything on that quest. Herman Melville the author of Moby Dick, called Ecclesiastes the truest of all books. You know, if nothing else, you know, one of our values is always be real. Ecclesiastes is, is real. It admits certain things that, that we don't often like to admit. It names certain things that we would often rather avoid thinking about. You know, our mortality and uh, the potential of the futility of it all. Thomas Wolfe described Ecclesiastes as the highest flower of poetry, eloquence, and truth, and the greatest single piece of writing I have known. And so in this poetic, eloquent, but dark book of Ecclesiastes, we find this grappling, this wrestling, with ultimate realities. And so today we're going to land the plane. And for some of us it'll be a relief. It'll be a challenge, but it'll be a relief uh, from all this introspection. Uh, because for, for several weeks now, now, now last week with Darren's message, uh, great message by Darren Raby last week, by the way. I hope you got to see that. And um, really good-looking guy, too. I like his hairdo. Um, <laughs> My wife, uh, he sat right up where I usually sit, 
on Sunday at the 1045, and I was sitting back in the middle of, this, of the side over here with friends. And so Kathy just came right up and sat by Darren. Uh, from behind, we look pretty similar. Uh, but anyway, that message was very practical and applicable and helpful and positive. Um, but until you get to certain points like that chapter, it is laced with all of this, these questions and all the things that we can try in order to find that, that meaning and that purpose. And to be honest, it's a difficult book. It's difficult to interpret. It's also somewhat depressing at times, if we're honest. But then we come to the end, chapter 12. And the verses that we're going to read today, um, and by the way, I encourage you, if you have a, a Bible or you're on your phone, uh, to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And, and the verses that we're going to read today land the plane. And they give the bottom line. Uh, it, it's kind of like with Jesus' parable. Sometimes he would give the parable, then he would give the interpretation of the parable. It's like all that has been said by the teacher who is a character within the book, who, may, who probably represents Solomon for sure, but he then gets out of character at the very end. And you notice the, the change of person and the change of tone. And when we finally get down to chapter 12, verse 9, and again, it, it's interesting, it, this, this book begins with Ecclesiastes 1-2, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Have a good day. And then at the end, right before this change, it again, 12 verse 8, it's meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. And so this whole journey has taken us to this point where you're still saying, you know, Everything is meaningless. Once you've tried it all, once you've experienced everything under the sun, uh, which is another way of saying life without God, if this is all there is, if this is all there is, everything is meaningless. And then verse 9, the whole tone changes, and he steps out of character. Some think it's an editor you know, that later added this. I, I think it's just the intention of the author all along is we have all this poetic masterpiece about the futility of life under the sun or without God, and then we have this brief epilogue that steps out of that character and then gives us the bottom line of the meaning of life in quite uh, profound terms. So we'll start with verse 9. Not only was the teacher wise... But he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words. And what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son of anything in addition to them, of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. And so that's 
his introduction to what he's about to give us, which is the last couple of verses, which is the zinger and uh, the finale, the grand finale of Ecclesiastes. But I want us to look at these words because these words of introduction to his grand finale and his bottom line are really, really important. Um, he, uh, he is telling us, first of all, that these words, uh, we need to pay attention to them. Uh, we need to listen. Uh, he says, words of the wise are like goads. Or uh, a goad is a sharp stick uh, that would be used to prod cattle or whatever, you know, someone might, might be hurting, you know, and, and it, you know, just a, a wooden stick with maybe a hook, a pointed end, often even in that time might have an iron tip, you know, to it, an iron age. And, and they would use this cattle prod or this, uh, they would use it to herd ox, oxen or, or perhaps sheep. And, and it, it is not a comfortable thing, you know, it's not, <laughs> it's not always comfortable uh, to get pit, you know, hit and prodded uh, by a goad. Words of the wise are like that. You know, whether they come from our parents, you know, whether they come from our boss, whether they come from a trusted friend who cares enough to tell us the truth, maybe they come from even an employee who is brave enough to say the emperor has no clothes and tell you as boss that, hey, you know, things aren't so good around here. You know, whatever it is, it's like, ew. You know, a critic, you know, you, you, you can't let critics just run everything, but you, get, you have to listen to critics. And sometimes those critics are wise. Some are not wise, some are wise. The discernment is knowing the difference. It's like that, you know, that, there's something in what you said um, that I need to listen to. It stings, but it stings. And so we tend to avoid those kinds of truths, but, but the Word of God is often like that. It, it penetrates, and it's for our good, but we don't like it. It's not always about what feels good or what uplifts us. You know, a, a lot of us would say, I want to go to, to, to church, and, and I, I want to be uplifted. You know, I want it to be positive. And, and overall, that's, we would certainly want the end result to overall be very uplifting, but the fact is, the first thing we want is the truth, right? If you go to the doctor, you want the doctor to tell you the truth, uh, not just gloss over things. And so I, th I think of it as like, you know, your parents say, this is for your own good. Um, and and I, I can remember when I was six years old, the first time I can remember getting a shot. I'm sure I got shots when I was a baby, but thankfully I don't remember those. But when I was sick, when I was six, I got very sick. And I was actually admitted into the hospital, which is really an extraordinary thing uh, because, you know, my mom just didn't believe in doctors. And so uh, to go, I must have been incredibly sick, you know, for the mother that thought aspirin and a cold rag was the answer to a concussion um, and that most cuts, even those that my friends would require 10 stitches, just needed mucurochrome and a Band-Aid that I ended up in the hospital, man, I must have been sick, but I got a, a shot probably of penicillin for this infection that I had and a very high fever, and I needed that. 
In fact, probably it might not be exaggerating to say I needed that shot to live. But I didn't want that shot. In fact, I didn't want that shot so much that it took like they had to call in extra nurses to hold me down as I was screaming and fighting with my little skinny six-year-old self with near superhuman strength. I was not submitting to that shot because I did not want that pain. And Solomon is saying here that the words of the wise are like goads. Uh, They prod us. They poke us. uh, They correct us. uh, they, They keep us off the wrong path. They keep us from getting lost. And some, sometimes uh, that, that, doesn't, that doesn't feel good. It says in Hebrews, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so, yes, this, these words of the wise, I think what he's saying here apply not only to the, the overall message of the book of Ecclesiastes, but, but the whole weight of Scripture, uh, that, that the whole weight of the words of the wise that we, that we have and the gift and the treasure of this collection of books that we call the Old and the New Testament or the Bible as Christians is filled Certainly with parts that are difficult to understand and interpret, uh, yes. And also parts that are just uplifting and inspiring. But some parts that are just hard to hear but true. You know, Mark Twain, Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible I, I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts I do understand. And for most of us, we struggle just to hear the truth. And so the first thing he's saying here, hey, and that's true of all the wisdom literature, by the way, you know, in, in, in Proverbs and, and, and in this book for sure. It's like, hey, you might not want to hear this. This might be hard for you to hear, uh, but, but listen up. And then he says, uh, be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. And th- I find this interesting. I, and and I, I love to read and and, you know, and I, I have a library of, of a lot of books. Every now and then when someone comes in into my office, they look. And a very common question is people looking at that wall, those shelves with that wall of books. And have you read all these? And I'm like, no, they're just for looks. Um, but I, I've read, you know, most of them. Many, some of them I've read more than once. And I, love, you know, I enjoy reading. I, I like to learn. I like to grow. And that's part of my job, if you will, that I love. It's, uh, but the thing is, is after, there is, comes a time in which uh, we must just admit, you know, um, knowledge, more knowledge is not what we need. More knowledge is, is for, to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to, to, to follow him, more knowledge is not what we need. What we need is more faith to act on the knowledge that we already have. And so oftentimes we make it so complicated and, and, and so we're either intimidated by our lack of knowledge and say, I just don't know enough you know, to be some super Christian or we are proud 
of our knowledge, thinking that our additional accumulation of knowledge is somehow going to make us superior to someone who has less. And the warning is here, hey, be careful about, you know, many books. You know, it ha it, learning has its place, but we need to put it in its perspective, and we need to be careful what voice we're listening to. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, uh, had probably the most extensive library of any, any man in England in his day. Um, he, 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 read, he read not just theology. He read in every discipline. He was completely obsessed with, uh, with things like just the science of the day, medicine. And, and he wrote a lot about medicine. It's, it's terrible uh, ideas about medicine. He, he needed to stick with theology. But he, he, had a, he, had a, he was a Renaissance man. He had an interest in a, in a lot of, of different things and history and the early church fathers. He had this vast, vast library. But he's often quoted as saying, but I'm a man of one book. I'm a man of one book. But I wanted to give you the full quote of that today because the full quote really applies to our study of Ecclesiastes because Wesley, as he as he said, uh, what was probably not the only time he said it, but one, you know, one of the more famed, the context of his quote um, really fits with all of this that we've been grappling with. Wesley said, to, to candid, reasonable men, I'm not afraid to lay open what have been the inmost thoughts of my heart. I have thought I'm a creature of a day, Passing through life as an arrow, through the air. I am a spirit come from God, returning to God. Just hovering over the great gulf, till a few moments hence, I am no more seen. You hear the, the spirit of Ecclesiastes in these words. I drop into an unchangeable eternity. I want to know one thing the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end, he came from heaven. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri, a man of one book. And so Solomon tells us, be careful about what voices you're listening to. Remember to listen to the wisdom of God. And then he summarizes the bottom line of everything that we've explored in this entire book. And he gives us, which takes, takes a lot of nerve, but he basically says, here's the meaning of life. And uh, every now and then, you know, we have a Q&A &A at our round the table, which is always fun. You know, I get all these questions 
and I have Kathy with a buzzer and one minute to answer each question, and she buzzes me when I go over. So she enjoys it, they enjoy it, I don't enjoy it that much, but, but so every now and then somebody puts a little zinger in there just for fun, you know, and, and one of them has been is what is the meaning of life? just to see, you know, what kind of rise they can get out of me. So basically, that's what Solomon's doing right now. With the buzzer in hand and the timer, Solomon is saying, here's the meaning of life. And he, he picks it up with verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So the bottom line for Solomon is in, after all the analysis and all the introspection, he says, you know, fear God and keep his commandments. Let's take those one at a time. Fear God. Fear God. There is a very prolific biblical theme that is difficult for the modern ear. Many of us struggle, and some of it because we've had a view of a distant and even angry God, and I believe that God is angry at times because most people that love much ultimately have anger. Uh, without, without great love, there is no great anger. Uh, because you become angry uh, about uh, your beloved either being abused or abusing themselves, being on the wrong path. That only that can conjure up, only love can conjure up the greatest anger. And so, yes, yes, God has anger. I mean, there's bib biblical evidence all along of the anger of God, but the, the nature of God's love and even his anger is fueled by love. And, and, and so we, we, we need not dismiss the anger of God and to, and to say, oh, I want a God of love, as if, as if love is never angry. And so we really need to, to stare down this theological truth of the fear of God. Uh, we, need, we need to understand it better. We preachers need to talk about it more and teach it better. Now, yes, the fear of God uh, biblically um, is, is certainly reverence and awe. It is reverence and awe. Um, but there's a part of me, and for years I've said that, when people say, hey, tell me about the fear of God, because I, I, don't, I don't like that idea. I, I don't want to feel like I need to be afraid of God and and I'll be like, well, fear of God, that word, you know, in, in, the, in the Old Testament and in the New, it really, it really means reverence and awe. I, I fear uh, that in doing that, we might be diminishing some of the raw power of what that concept is all about. Because the truth is, if we have a, if we have an accurate picture of who God is in his awesome majesty and holiness, we would approach his presence with fear and trembling. 
And, you know, and I think about just the, the Genesis account with, with Adam and Eve in the garden. And, and I'm just going to go through several verses about the fear of God. It, it, it's, it, Adam says, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So if this were a reality show, Adam and Eve were naked and afraid. And so they were, but to me, I, that's the first time in the Bible that it, says, it talks about the fear of God. And I'll just be honest, I think he was actually afraid. You know, it's like, I respect you, you know, no. Uh, you're awesome, and so I hid. No, I was afraid of you. And, and there is a healthy fear when we are, when we're awestruck and we sin. When we have a holy, pure, all-powerful God that we answer to, and we stray, and we sin, we hide because we're afraid. And so there's a part of me that wants to restore that. And I've, I've taught it the other way for years, but I just, this week as I was wrestling with this concept of the fear of God, I thought, for some of us, we just need to be reminded how big and how holy and, and perfect and pure and, and powerful God is and it to strike a little fear in our hearts, maybe a lot of fear in our hearts, that we would bow down to him because it's only out of that initial response to the holiness of God can we truly appreciate this same God calls us near and forgives us and holds us close and calls us friend. It is only in the backdrop of that understanding of the fear of God can we experience fully how amazing the grace of God is and the love of God. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The beginning. It's the starting point. The fear of God is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and destruction. And now this is not a, just an Old Testament idea. Um, you know, the... Uh, the the shepherds, when Jesus was born, were on the hillside, and they were absolutely terrified. And the angel said to them, fear not. Well, they said fear not because they were trembling with fear. They were trembling with fear in the presence of angels, and the angels are just the errand boys of God. You know, that nothing, nothing compared to God. But yet, their undiluted presence of God's messengers struck fear. Jesus himself said this, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. He's not talking about the devil there. He's talking about his father. <laughs> be afraid because the devil can't do that. <laughs> he doesn't have the authority. It's God. God has the ultimate say. He's got the ultimate verdict. He's got the ultimate justice. And he says, you know, be it, don't, don't fear people. Fear God. And when you fear God, you won't fear people. Hebrews 10, 31 says it's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We just don't hear those types of things as much anymore, do we? The Apostle John was perhaps Jesus' closest friend on earth. He's the one that 
was called the, the beloved disciple. He's the one that stayed at the cross when everyone else ran. He's the one that reclined on Jesus' breast in the final uh, meal together that we now call the Last Supper. But when this same Apostle John saw Jesus risen and glorified in his vision that he records in the Revelation, it says, I fell at his feet as though dead. What does that mean, I fell at his feet as though dead? Sounds to me like he passed out. Jesus' best friend on earth, when he saw the risen and glorified Christ on his throne, passed out. For most of us, our concept of God is too small and too tame, too predictable, too harmless. I love all the Chronicles of Narnia and the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Lucy asked the beaver about Aslan the Lion, is he safe? And the beaver's like, oh, no. No, he's not safe. He's the king, I tell you. But he is good. He's good. And we need to have that balance restored of the majesty and the transcendence of God and the love and the eminence of God. David Jeremiah said to fear God means to be struck with awe in his all-consuming holy presence, to stand always and forever in breathless exaltation of who he is and what he's done, and how vastly and infinitely his greatness overshadows our brief, vaporous existence. John Newton says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fear relieved." Uh, that, you know, the greatest hymn ever written, Amazing Grace. Even the amazing grace, the hymn called Amazing Grace, talks about the fear of God. It says, it was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fear relieved. Uh, some of us have never fully tasted the grace and love of God because we haven't first been overcome by the fear of God that just has a vision of who he is, has a vision of, his, of how, uh, that we can't fully have, by the way, but at least a glimpse of the glory of God. We get a glimpse of the glory of God, then we can begin to appreciate the grace of God. Then secondly, he says, keep his commandments. Keep his commands. In the New Testament, you know, Jesus, there's a lot in the Old Testament. There's the Ten Commandments, and then there's, you know, the Pharisees made it like 600 and, you know, something laws, and they complicated things. Jesus came and he boiled it down. He simplified it. But then he also died on the cross on our behalf so that we don't have to obey the rules of the law in order to earn our eternal redemption. On the cross, he said paid in full. But yet when asked, you know, what, it, what are the commands? You know, what, what are the greatest commands? He he boiled it down, and not only did he boil it down to his bottom line, but he also gave uh, a little point after that is, is very telling. It's basically not only is this the, the greatest command, this kind of sums up all the commands. He, he, he said it this way, Love the Lord your God with all your heart 
and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second, like, like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said this, verse 40, it's very key. He said, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Which the law and the prophets would have been what Ecclesiastes is referring to when it says, fear God and keep his commandments. It would be the law and the prophets. And so he's saying, all that Jesus is now saying, that means love God and love others. And so put those two things together and you, you got Solomon saying, fear God, love God, love others as yourself. That's it. That's it. That's, that's the secret. You want the secret of life. That's it. Fear God. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Bottom line. There's your bottom line. Then he says, why? He goes on in verse 14. It's key. It's the very last verse. It's the key to understanding Ecclesiastes, the whole book. He says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And so in the end, he's saying life under the sun may be meaningless, but life under God is meaningful because a God on his throne, a God of justice, will ultimately render everything meaningful. Even many atheistic philosophers will ultimately tend, you know, in existentialism toward nihilism and eventually admit, you know, there is no meaning. The most intellectually honest atheist will admit there really is, to our fleeting little existence in this vast universe that may be one of many universes and we're just a little speck on a speck on a, of a speck of, of a solar system in the speck of a galaxy. We're like a we're just like a housefly. You know, we're here today, we're gone to tomorrow, and it doesn't matter. Unless there's something more. Unless there is a judge. Unless there is a God, which is the message of Ecclesiastes. Philip. Riken, who's the president of Wheaton College, to me summarized it so well. And I, 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 just, I just leave you with this. To me, this is the message of this book. And it's a message we all need to live in the light of eternity, to live intentionally for eternity. He said, if there is no God, then there is no judge. If there is no judge, there will be no final judgment. If there is no final judgment, there is no ultimate meaning in life. Nothing matters. Later he said, the final message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters, but that everything matters. What we did, how we did it, and why we did it, all have eternal significance. The reason everything matters is because everything in the universe is subject to the final verdict of a righteous God who knows every secret. And that is the message of this book. So if you've always wondered, what is the meaning of life? And I'm not here telling you, hey, listen to John Tanner. He knows the meaning of life. 
I'm pointing to the wisdom of the ages and a source way beyond my capacity to say, fear God, love God, love others. Because one day we will stand before a holy and righteous God and give an account for what we've done, why we've done it, and how we've done it. Yes, it is by grace, not our works, that we enter into this eternal reward. But yet, there will be an account. There will be an account for how we've invested our lives and how we've viewed and worshiped God and how we've treated others. And so we live our lives now in light of that day. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we thank you for this journey, this journey with this, uh, this ancient book that's challenged us, that's inspired us. Um, we, we pray that, that, we would, that we would be open <laughs> to your to your prodding as the one shepherd, uh, that you are that shepherd, that you are our shepherd, and that we, we want to submit uh, to, uh, to your, uh, your rod and your staff. Uh, you, you lead us, you guide us, uh, you challenge us, and Lord, we, we bow down it's not about us. This life is really about you. And so, Lord, help us to, uh, to have a revolution of our soul today to realize that you and your infinite power and holiness do not revolve around our lives, Lord. Our, our lives revolve around you and your glory. Uh, we pray that you would bring home that message to our hearts today and then invite us out of that into a walk of faith and grace and love and hope with you. In Christ's name, amen.